Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's uh, see how far we get now in 13. And don't worry, we, we'll, we'll definitely be able to finish the book up, I think, in our time. This is class nine. We've got five more classes. We'll, we'll be okay. Um, and then in verse 12, he says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Now, now here's lesson time. Do you know what the significance is of what I've just done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for I am. You call me your teacher, you call me your Lord, and I am. But if I, being your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do, as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's saying, I'm your, this is the example. The example is, if you want to be great, you be humble. And if I'm your teacher and Lord and I do this, that means that you're, since you're not greater than me, what should you do? The same thing. Now, there's some churches that have foot washings. And, you know, I guess that's all right. You know, I, I don't, you know, they, they go to this passage to talk about it, and that, that's okay. Um, but I think what's the what's the grand point that Christ is trying to make? What's the big picture point Christ is trying to make here? Servanthood, humility. The church is not a place for egotistical ladder climbers. It's a place where you seek to serve other people. By definition, that's what it's to be about. Spiritual gifts. Why did God give you spiritual gifts? To toot your own horn? To draw attention to yourself? To edify the body of Christ. My gift of teaching is nothing, does nothing for the body of Christ if I look at myself in the mirror and teach myself. It's only good if it's edifying others. Your gift of service or teaching or preaching or whatever you have does you no good if you do it by yourself. You need to serve other people. That's why you're given it. It's not about you. It's about others. And Christ is trying to give them a primary example here that that's, that true greatness in the body of Christ is born out of true servanthood. And if I've done that and you're not greater than me, that means you should certainly do it. Servant is not greater than his master. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am, that he's not there. I am. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and who receives me receives him who sent me. What's Christ talking about here in 18, 19, 20 here? That's the point. By the way, this is not all that Christ said. This is a condensation. But what is, what's Christ communicating here? What's he telling the disciples? I'm going to tell you something beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you might know what? That I'm God. I, I predicted this. 
right? And, and what's the one marker that God has, or one characteristic that God has that no other foreign God ever had? Predicting. He can predict the future, right? Remember Isaiah. Um, let's bring in the other gods and let's see which one of them can tell you what's going to happen. Then you can believe him. I'm the only one that knows the end from the beginning. So Christ is saying, I'm going to tell you something so when it comes to pass, you might remember and know that I am he. I am. I'm, I'm God. And what was it he was predicting? The betrayal. The betrayal. He, he didn't want them to be shocked and surprised. And, and you know... One of the great heresies that we have floating around the church nowadays, the evangelicalism, is this openness of God business. You ever hear that? Openness of God basically says God does not infallibly know the future. He is not sovereign. Um, God cannot know the future because it hasn't happened yet. You know, everybody says, well, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, right. Yeah. What does God tell us again and again and again in the scriptures? He knows the end from the beginning. And how well does he know that? Perfectly. Nothing catches God by surprise. The betrayal of Christ by Judas was not, oh, nuts, what do we do now? This wasn't supposed to happen. And when Christ chose Judas as one of the twelve, what did Christ knew when he was chosen? He knew that was the one that would betray me, but he chose him anyways. Why? That's the plan. Now, did God make Judas betray Christ? Judas did perfectly fine on his own. And Christ is saying, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you guys are not caught off guard thinking that somehow... The plan got messed up. Somehow we're out of control. And the disciples should have caught on to that, shouldn't they? Because, well, our, here's our problem. We look back and say, what a bunch of idiots. They should have seen it. Well, we've got, we've got the benefit of the Holy Spirit and the end of the story. <laughs> they didn't have that. But what, what should have gone through the disciples' mind when Christ was betrayed? Oh, this is part of the plan. He, he wasn't caught by surprise. And when Christ was nailed on a cross, what should they have said? This is part of the plan. I wonder how he's going to pull this. I wonder what's going to go on here. But what happened to the disciples? They became despondent. The road to Emmaus, right? Well, we thought he was the one, but he's crucified. Now it's the third day and you know, it's all over. And Christ said, oh, you foolish and slow of heart. Didn't you catch on? And, you know, again, 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 Christ is hinting to these guys. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. So after it happened, they look back and say, oh, we should have got it. And we didn't. And Christ is saying, I'm telling you this so so you're not going to be shocked. And then, and then he makes a statement here. He who receives whomever I sin receives me, and if you receive me, you receive him who sent me. So when somebody listens to you as you are sent, who are they really listening to? Christ. And to the Father. To the Father, right? If you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. 
And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They didn't get it, probably, so he had to repeat it. One of you is going to betray me. There's a betrayer here. And the disciples looked one another perplexed about what he had spoke. They didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand. You understand this idea of death, burial, resurrection, that was the farthest thing from their mind. They didn't get it until it was after. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Which one's this one? Most likely John. John, John notes... And whenever John talks about himself, he's the one who Jesus loved. John never got it out of his head that Jesus loved him. I sir, I like John. That was really Mary Magdalene. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. you, you've been watching the Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah. He's the only one that never died of martyrdom. Yeah. Then he had a lot longer life to endure more pain. Right. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Uh, so we know the one leaning on Jesus' bosom. The idea there is John's not leaning literally on Jesus, but where is John? He's right next to Jesus. All right. And Peter said, hey, John, find out who is it. Then leaning back on Jesus, pressed it in, and Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So he told John who it was. And, and by the way, this was a gesture of honor for the host to dip the bread and give it to you was was a gesture of honor. He was honoring Judas. All right. Now, evidently, what's happening is all the disciples were not privy to the conversation here. Between John and Jesus, and because when Judas went out, they thought Christ was sending him out to buy something. Between Jesus and Peter. And John. Oh, oh he goes here. Yeah. And this is here. Satan entered him. What happened here? Theologically, what happened here? Yeah, you know, there's some that say, well, he was possessed by Satan. And, and that's there's certain possibility that's what happened. But up to this point, what 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 ha what what's the significance of this moment in Judas's life? This was the point of no return. Point of no return. For those that believe in the doctrine that you can fall from grace, that's where he backslides. Got to read. Satan had to enter him, so he wasn't there to begin with. And you got to read a whole lot into that to make him backslide. Judas was never part. How do you know? How do you know Judas was never part? Because Christ knew it. He said, "I've chosen all of you, but one of you is a devil." Judas was never a believer. He looked like it. He acted like it. He walked with Christ, but right up to the edge. I have a fascinating study of physics, and you know, I was I graduated with a degree in physics. I don't know if you knew that, but um, 
Yeah, I love the math. <laughs> I hated math, but I love the physics. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like, you know, studying about astronomy and black holes. And there's a point on a black hole where when you cross that, that line, there's no escape. <clears throat> You'll never get out of there. And, and sort of Judas fell in the black hole of perdition, if you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. he, he, he came up to one, he crossed, and once he crossed that line, there was no going back. His destiny was fixed. And why was it fixed? Because he rejected the light. Don't blame, don't say, well, you know, God, I'm sorry, God, but you ordained him to reject you because you had to have a betrayer and you picked him. No. The way it works is that what did God do when it came to Judas? He did not interfere at all with what? His natural inclinations. His natural inclinations. That was a character flaw that he knew he had. Judas had that from the time he was born. And he was a thief, remember? And he stole what was in the bag. And Christ knew that. Well, in my, uh, I've taken ethics this semester as well, and one of the things we're talking about is uh, predestination with John Calvin. And one of the things uh, that they say about predestination is, this is a good example, they would look upon Judas as being this automaton who had no choice, no personal responsibility in this matter, that he was predestined to do this, and so he was helplessly drawn along with God's uh, you know, uh, a wrathful path. Who says that? The, the ethics uh, book that I'm reading. That's the book. How they look at right. the whole issue of predestination. And how does the instructor look at it? Well, oh, the same way, of course. And he and I debate regularly. <laughs> at least okay, well, well, tell him, tell him you got another one that says he's he's wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's a heresy called double predestination. Which basically said God ordains you to heaven and he ordains you to hell. That's not what the Bible teaches, not at all. Oh, I know. I, I, you know. I know that. He just, they look at it like God predestined every action, no. everything that occurs. And so poor Judas, poor Pilate, poor all the... The reason being, if God ordained you to go to hell, then God's character attribute of justice... Is flawed, right? right? God did not ordain anybody to go to hell. Mm -hmm. The Bible teaches if God does nothing and leaves us to our own devices, we're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. And none of us will turn to God. And so the only way to overcome that is God chooses some. And if God chose none, no one will go to heaven. <clears throat> Nobody. God did not choose Judas. Why not? I don't know why God didn't choose Judas. But God did not make Judas do what he did because God is not, the Bible says God is not the author of evil, right? He can't do evil. He's not the author of it. He forces no one to do evil. Judas was not drug along. No, I don't want to betray him. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't. No, that's not at all. He wanted to do that. Along those same lines, I I've actually listened to church debates in church that trying to justify Judas' salvation because of similar, you know, that maybe, you know, he's probably, <laughs> I listen to people arguing this back and forth. Here's a question. Does God make you sin? Yeah. 
God does not make you sin. I mean, if you want to go down that route, you say, well, God made Judas sin. God didn't make Judas sin. That's exactly the point they're trying to make, is that with this predestination, God has ordained every act that occurs, that God made Hitler do the things that Hitler no. did. And God, God allowed Hitler and every other God allowed Hitler to have free reign of what Hitler's right. natural inclination well, was to do. Well, that's good. You need to debate with them. Absolutely. All right. No, no, because that's not the biblical. Punishment on German people. God did not force Judas to do what Judas did. Judas did out of his own will, his own desire. And because the father did not draw Judas right, what choice would Judas make? He would act in accordance with his nature, right? What was his nature? Selfishness. What's in it for me? What do I get out of the deal? Now that ought to tell you something about the prosperity boys, right? Well, as soon as you start saying, what's in it for me? You're off. You're, you're, you're off. The more you study this, the more you realize those that finally got to that point of no return did not just happen overnight. No. Christ did so much in their life in front of them that they might, when they made that choice, they had no excuse. No. When you think about Judas, he was called as the rest of them. He saw all the miracles that Jesus done. I mean, he was right there, close enough to touch that man in the pool of Bethesda. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. When you think about everything, when he sent them out two by two, yeah. he went out. Two and by Judas two. was able to. Cast the demons he out. Cast out demons and they healed. So, you know, he was right there in the thick of things, right there next to Jesus Christ. And he still was just as blind because of what I, I can't imagine being that close. And, of course, when you look at it from our perspective, once you're saved and look back, you go, it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> just like the disciples did, but. He was right there. There was no excuse for him not to accept Jesus Christ as the Look at the Pharisees who spent their entire life looking for the Messiah. He shows up and they reject him. That's right. Same thing. Look at uh, Pharaoh who, who watched God systematically dismantle his entire army, and his entire kingdom. Yeah. None of these guys were robots. They all made choices. And, and, and they, they willfully rejected the, 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 the knowledge. They Look at the Israelites who watched God do miracle after miracle. We talked about it in Hebrews, right? He did miracle after miracle, and, and, and oh, he just brought us out here to kill us. We know it. We knew it. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt, so we got to die out here in the wilderness. You know? And they did. And they did because of their rebellion. Um, God gave Judas every opportunity. Christ gave Judas every opportunity. And even right up to the Last Supper, there's the opportunity is open. And Judas had already made up his mind. The double that's a, that's double heretic. It's heresy. And, it's wrong. And human's free will. Could you explain a little clearly? Um, double predestination. Human will. Free will. Okay. Pre double predestination says God not only ordains who's going to go to heaven. But he ordains who's going to go to hell. No. That's not true. Okay. The way to understand it, 
and I think the Bible bears this out, is that if God does nothing, everybody goes to hell. God does not have to ordain you to go to hell. You're going to do that just fine on your own. You don't need any assistance from God to go to hell. You're, you're headed that way already. John 3, if you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. All right? If, he, if God does nothing, everybody goes to hell. But God in his grace and mercy and for reasons known only to him has chosen some to reach out and to redeem of his own sovereign choice. That's predestination and election. All right, That's the biblical way to understand it. It's not a double. And when it comes to free will, you need to understand that we have a will, but it's not completely free, but it's bounded by the choices that we have set before us. And for an unregenerate person, even though they have a will to choose various options, every option they will choose is sinful to some degree. They will never choose the right thing for the right reason. Never. So Jesus is free will to... He chose to, to reject. But his will was bounded by his nature. What was his nature? His nature was as a lost reprobate person yeah your choices the choices that you make are bound are, are, are defined by your nature by what you are God wants to okay everybody living it right try to as much as possible salvation God offers salvation to any everybody but the only people who will receive it are the ones that he has chosen yeah. And you have a free will only in the sense that you have the freedom to choose various options. But your free will will never choose God. That's what Romans is saying, right? They're all gone out of the way. They all together become unprofitable. I love that Greek word. Hakriosthene. It means uh, it's sour milk. You know, it's gross sour milk. What do you do with sour milk? You know. You get rid of it as fast as you can, you know. He said, we're all rotten to the core. If God does nothing, every human being that ever lived will walk their way, walk away from God. No one would ever choose God. God never planned everybody to go to hell. Right? No. God does not plan, God does not ordain people to go to hell. That's, a, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if God did nothing when just, just sat back and said, okay, let's see how this thing plays out, nobody would wind up in heaven. Human free will, only human, human uh, conscious power. It's the, your will is bounded by your nature. That's, that's the concept. Human, human power. Yeah, by what you are. There are certain things you can choose to do and certain things you can't choose to do. So, if I haven't rejected Jesus, it's my, my free will. It's your fault. But it's, I don't want, free will is a bad term to use because it means that you're, you can make any decision. And that's not what the Bible teaches. I don't think that's what the Bible theologically teaches. The Bible teaches you can make any decision in accordance with your nature. Does God have a perfectly free will? The human's no. free will is not, not very uh, proper. That's a bad word to use. Right. God does not have a free will. 
if by that you mean God can do anything, he can't sin. What about the... the it's not in accordance with his God nature. Pardon? That's right. God they chose and they were in a perfect state. The garden, oh, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. They were about as close to having a free will as any human being. Because they did not have a sinful nature at that point. They didn't they didn't have a fallen nature. Right. So All right. The, the, the but they free. but they were given a choice. Right. And they rebelled. And they rebelled. That's not the free will. That's the free will. That's like yeah, you're getting hung up in the semantics of it. <laughs> free will is a bad term to use. It's just a bad term. All right. Because it, it, it implies that you have a will that's equally disposed to choose right as to choose wrong. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you will choose wrong, wronger, and wrongest. But you'll never choose right. Does that make any sense? That's probably not words. Yeah, you'll never choose the right thing for the right reason. Ever. Adam and Eve was not in that state when they made the wrong choice. They were in a state of innocence. All right. Our nature as human beings, we're bounded by what we are. Okay. And apart from Christ, we will never choose the right. Ever. What about the unbeliever rejected? They'll never choose the right. That's not part of their, their even their conscious palette of choices. But they choose to go their own way. And some of them go worse than others, right? Hitler chose to go a little bit worse than some other people, but all men will go that way. <coughs> all men reject. Unbeliever rejects the Jesus. And they are responsible so for their, that. Their will it is wrong, right? Wrong, yeah. Wrong. Their will is bounded by their nature. Their nature is an inclination, their enmity against God. They hate God. They will not they, they will not submit to God. The flesh is enmity against God, right? Romans 8. It's not subject to the law of God. It can't be. The unbeliever will never, ever, 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 ever choose right. And remember when we say choose right, right for the right reason with the right motive. They'll never do that. Ever. That's the predestination related, related to predestination. The unelect, right? The unelect make their choices. They have freedom of choice. They make moral decisions. All of them bad. And ultimately, those will lead them to hell. That's God's predestination, right? Unbeliever. I don't understand your question. Unbeliever. They're not predestined to hell. That's not the predestination. No. He's asking basically what the ethics instructors are saying. Right. That, that God predestines them to hell. No. And no, that's not no. The Bible never, ever, 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 anywhere in any verse of the scripture ever says that God ordained people to go to hell. That's so, not what it says. So unbelievers, they choose it. Yeah. God's and they choose it by their rejection, and their rejection is bound by their decisions which are bound by their nature, by what they are. And as a fallen human being, you will never choose the right thing. How is the elect? God overrides that. That's a work of God who overrides your normal inclination. 
And and the bottom line is, if God did not override, no free will. Yeah. People have free will. That's why they free will. That's what you did. If Christ, I mean, you know, go back and you know, read, read John six again and again and again and again and again and again. Finally, it'll sink into you. No man can come to me unless the Father draw him. I don't know how else you interpret it. And then when sixty five, where he says you can't come unless it's been granted to you by the Father. I don't know how else to interpret that. God overrides your inclination. I like the way Dawson Trotman, who founded Navigator, said said. I was damned, I was lost, I was on my way to hell, but God intervened. And that's how to understand it. If God did not intervene in my life, I'd be going to hell. There's no doubt about it. But he intervened. Why? Because he, or some reason known only to him, he chose me in eternity past. And in time, he redeemed me. And the light went on, and I understood the gospel, and I understood grace, and the first thing I did was ask him to forgive my sins and to make me a new creation, and he did. But it's all him. He gets all the credit for it. I'm lighting right now. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep a confusion a little bit. <laughs> and if he hadn't done that, I'd have never believed. I wouldn't have known, right? And it wouldn't have made any sense. And the decisions I would have made in my life would have been made for my own best interest. I go to work, why? Because it's a good thing to do so I can make money, so I can buy things. Not because I want to honor God. <laughs> it, it's, we're, we're talking deep theological things here, but but we got to say that when it comes to Judas because people think, you know, this poor sucker, you know, the guy, you know, he, he's this innocent, you know, Jew walking around Palestine. And God said, OK, I'm going to choose to damn you and make you betray the son of God and you don't have any say in it. And that's not what happened. And Christ, even even though Judas was not elect. Right. Christ was still offering. In a bona fide sense, salvation to him even though he would never believe it, so that in eternity, when Judas stands before the great white throne and is condemned to the lake of fire, nobody says, wow, you know, God, you're being a little harsh on the guy, you know? I mean, he, he didn't have much of a chance. Yeah, guys, I gave him every opportunity. Nobody, there, in fact, it's probably, this is probably true, there's probably been no human being in all of history that had greater light than he did. That's right. Think about that. He's one of the twelve. You're walking next to the Savior of the world. Watch him. He watched him raise people from the dead, heal, miracle after miracle after miracle. And finally, when it's all said and done, you're bailing out for 30 pieces of silver? Yeah. You know what the last thing? No. That's the price of a common slave. Could Christ see who was elected and who was? Christ knew. I think it doesn't say that he he definitely knew in the case of of this it's Christ seemed to imply in 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 um, uh, John six that that's one of the things that he he voluntarily veiled in his incarnation. 
In other words, Christ did not walk around saying, I know who the elect are and I know who aren't necessarily. Um, he, he always puts the onus back on the Father. The Father will draw. The Father will give you. The Father will draw you. The Father will allow you to come. Um, he doesn't seem to hint that he knew every elect person. But I haven't, I haven't really thought through that much. John 2, the last verse says, he knew what was in man. He, he knew the heart of man, definitely. But does that imply he knew who was the elect and who wasn't in his incarnation? Like, you know, he said, I, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the son of man. Um, there are certain things Christ gave up in his kenosis, his emptying. Um, was he omniscient? Yeah, he, he was, but he did not exercise that omniscience. All right, and um, does he know now? Well, of course he does now. But um, he knew Judas was not. He knew these eleven were. He knew that. But does he? Did he know all the elect people there? I I don't know. I've not really thought through that. He knew Judas was not. He knew who would betray him. And and this is just to say it was not a shock. It was no. And, and Christ is trying to say this to the disciples so that when it all happens, they're not saying, oh, what happened? Did he lose control? I mean, he could raise the dead. How could he allow this to happen? And Christ is basically saying, look, it's part of the plan. Everything's on schedule. Chill out. We're okay. And Judas did what Judas did because Judas wanted to do it. He rejected. Full light. And, and the Bible teaches that those who reject full light receive greater condemnation. And said, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Okay. Time's up. The day of grace is over for Judas. The, the die has been cast. His eternity has been sealed. There's no going back. He did what he did because he wanted to do it. And also said, it's not that at this point Judas went out and bartered with them, right? He, he had had this thing in the works all the way along. In fact, it said he was seeking an occasion to betray Christ. So this, this, is, not, this is not something that, you know, and, and I think, I forget who, who made the point. It's not like uh, Judas woke up one day and found that he was the son of perdition. He had been working on it for a long time. And, of course, no one at the table knew what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Jews had the money box that Jesus had said, buy these things we need for the feast, or that I should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Christ got rid of the betrayer. And even up to the end, he's offering him an opportunity. Chance. Peter and John knew, but the other disciples, you know, because you know they're 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 whispering to themselves or whatever. Their other disciples are talking, not paying attention, and um, they thought, you know, Jesus told them to go out and buy something or give some money to the poor or something. Because like Judas was, you know, the guy with the money, so if they needed some something for the feast or something, he's the one that would be able to go and get it for them. Um, 
So he went out. So when he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. What does he mean by now the Son of Man is glorified? What's been just set in motion? His death. It's all part of God's plan. And when did God come up with this plan? It's called the decree of God. That's a big theological term. The decree of God. God's plan. And God ordained this plan prior to creating anything. In fact, Peter says Christ was, was the Lamb of God ordained when? Before the foundation of the world. By the way, the word ordain there is a real cool word. It means, it's the same word used earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says we were chosen in him. The word chosen in him and the word foreordained are the same word. So that helps you with your election dilemma. If you want to say that, well, God just knew that we would believe and that we would be saved and that's why he chose us then you've also got to say, well, God just knew that Jesus would actually come and would actually die on the cross, and therefore this whole thing would work out. <laughs> that wasn't the way it worked. Christ was ordained. This was, part of the, this, was, this was part of the determinate counsel of God. And Christ was right on. And I said, now I am glorified. In what sense was Christ glorified? What does it mean to glorify? What does it mean to give glory to God? To make him known. To make him known, to display who he is, to show him to show his character, to make him look good. How's how is this going to make Christ look good? He's going to be crucified. Well, think about it. What do you what do you find out about Christ in his death? He's who he claims to be, he's deity, he rose again. We see the justice of God. We see the love of God, the mercy. We see God's wrath poured out on Christ. I mean, the entire crux of history boils down to that crucifixion. That is the event that defines all of history. And where do you most clearly see the divine justice, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness? Where does that come all together? Right at the cross. That was the high point. And of course, what are the angels thinking now? Let me add them. Let me add them. I've often wondered, you know, when I think about the character of God, how God could be a God of grace and mercy and be that in the perfect sense and also be a God of wrath. It almost seems like a conflicting character. And yet in him, they're in the perfect state. And they're both exercised perfectly within that perfect holy nature of God. And yet at the same time, when we as mortals sin and God's wrath is incurred to the point that he wants to exercise that wrath. And his response is to <clears throat> deal with it as God can. And yet at the other end of that character, you have the mercy and the grace and the love. And it almost seems to me from a human perspective, I'm speaking, that that would create a dilemma in my heart if you love someone and hate them at the same time. Or if you if someone hurts you and you want to wreak justice on them and forgive them at the same time. 
I mean, it's, it's just something I can't comprehend. And, and we're going to spend all of eternity trying to sort that out, I think. And when you think about it, it's like, whew, you know, it just... Well, remember, from God's perspective, he ordained our glorification. Salvation is a step along the way. So God sees us seated in heaven with him. He sees the end product. We don't see that. Yeah. You know, you look at Calvary, and you see all those forces of God's nature coming in on one spot, on one person. You see everyone, you see all these disparate threads of God's character and nature, all these attributes, and they all come together to cross. You see the horror, and then you see the glory. You see, you see his omniscience. Part of the plan. Nothing took him by surprise. You see his sovereignty. He could have called 10,000 angels and he didn't. You see his mercy as he died for us. You see his grace and forgiveness. And yet you see the justice of God as God's wrath was poured out perfectly on his son. It's all right there. We experience God's wrath not in the eternal sense, right? Chastised. But we're chastised. So, okay, that's, that's, my, that's my decision is God's wrath. That's a woman. No. <laughs> God's, God's wrath has been poured out on us on the cross yeah. on Christ. Now, are we part of God's temporal wrath in the sense that we're part of a fallen universe and, you know, fires and floods and accidents and stuff happen? Yeah, sure. See you later, Alan. Sure, we, we are. We're part of that. We see that. But that's not part of God's eternal wrath. There's a good Christian people that suffered greatly in Germany because of that. Yeah. Some of them died in concentration camp. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. I was at Buchenwald in the standing where his cell was before he was taken, I think, to Flossenburg and executed just before the fall of the of, the, of Germany. A lot of people were martyred. We live in a fallen world. Um, but see, God, God overturns all of that for his own divine glory. We will never suffer the divine wrath of God. It has been poured out on Christ on been poured out in our behalf on Christ. He took our place. So your your, your justification really then is on your eternal state. Yeah. As far as like, you know, the way because you still experience that. Like the people in Germany you still experience God's wrath by somebody else's evil. We live in a fallen universe. We will suffer because of the fallenness around us, all right? But that's not part of God's active wrath against our rebellion and sin. That has been poured out on Christ. Now, he may chastise us because of our rebellion, but that's different than the wrath of God. The wrath is no hope. Yeah, God's wrath has been poured out on the cross. Yeah. Well, what I mean by, when I say wrath, I mean, but not, it's simple wrath. 
we are part of God's temporal wrath in the sense that we live in a fallen universe and we will suffer consequences for sin. That's that's think of God's temporal wrath as consequences of sin. You're in a fallen universe. You make bad choices. You if you go out and you murder someone and you go to prison for that, that's part of God's temporal wrath in the sense that that that's part of the moral law of the universe, all right? But that's not God's eternal wrath. So, but anyways, here, uh, he said, and God is, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. God glorified, when do you see, when does God show his best? When's his character seen at its best? At the cross. How do you best know what God is like? Well, look at him at, from the human perspective, the worst possible time, the crucifixion. You're nailing the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God on a tree. And God does not immediately wipe out the entire human race as he could have. He didn't. And so when we're sitting around heaven in a million years and someone says, well, what about the grace of God? We're going to immediately look at the cross and just stand in awe. That's what grace is. Now, see, had there been no fall, had there been no sin, what would we do? Huh? Grace? What's that? But because of the cross, because we, we are, we're going to be able to stand in awe and wonder and praise. Why didn't he just wipe out humanity? Why, why didn't he call those 10,000 angels to destroy the world? Why didn't he wipe out all of creation and start over again? He didn't. And that's what Christ is saying. The glory of the cross. And, and see, stop and think about that. The glory of the cross. To the Jew, to the person living in the first century, what was the cross a picture of? Death. The worst possible death. As a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. It was illegal to be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of people. And when you talk about the cross, it was... It was a shame to the, to the world. It was a shame. And to the Jews, when they look at their Messiah hanging on a cross, what's their thinking? The imposter is finally dead. And yet when we look at it, what do we see? Glory, life. And Paul talks about that. We're in his, we're in his triumph in, in Corinthians. He talks about we're in his triumph some it's a savor of life to life to others, a savor of death. When you look at the cross and you see God at his best, you see it for what it is, the salvation of mankind, of humanity. And then when, we, when you're an unbeliever and you think of him as an imposter, it's about time the imposter was killed. It's a thing of shame. You know, and, and it's interesting when he, I've heard a man on TV saying, you know, I just can't believe that the death of a guy 
on a cross 2,000 years ago, years ago has anything to do with my eternal destiny. It's foolishness. It's moronic. Moros is the Greek word. Moronic. It is idiotic to think that. And yet, the glory of the cross is something that, that we'll never understand. And Christ is talking about the glory of the cross. God at his best. Man at his worst, killing the very creator of the universe. And God at his best, allowing himself to die to redeem us. No matter how long you think about that, it, you never get over the wonder of that. We better stop there and we'll finish these next few verses next week. Don't worry, we'll, we'll finish. Any questions or comments? Okay. Uh, don't forget to turn your tests in on the way out and um, we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be here, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for your love. Thank you for the cross. The Father, as Paul says, if any man glory, let him glory in the cross. To the world, it's a thing of shame, of weakness. But to us, it's the way of redemption. And when we were at our best, Father, you were at your, we were at, when we were at our worst, you were at your best. And all we can do is stand in wonder and awe at the foot of the cross and contemplate our substitute who took our place, took our wrath, took the punishment that we deserve. So that one day, Father, we would be able to stand in your presence holy and without sin to enjoy fellowship with you forever. Just thank you for that. Help us to ponder these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.